If you have a Bible, you can open to Psalm 90. Talk about Psalm 90. We're in our series going through the Psalms. Um, it's kind of one of the big famous ones, I think, or memorable ones. Uh, it's one of the only ones written by Moses, and um, so, uh, or at least attributed to him, or uh, however you want to take that title. Uh, so we're going to be talking about eternity this morning, eternity. Eternity is more than just an abstract concept for the philosophers and for the physicists to consider. Uh, God has revealed that he has put eternity into our hearts. That's uh, language that you find in the book of Ecclesiastes. Actually, if you want to go, uh, go home and read Ecclesiastes, uh, that's a, a great uh, book to read that sort of goes in line with a lot of the ideas we're talking about this morning. God has revealed that he's put eternity into our hearts, so we have some kind of connection to eternity that goes beyond uh, mere curiosity or a passing interest, uh, or even like a vocation of philosophers or physicists thinking about eternity. Eternity is the only thing that bestows meaning on your short life. Eternity is the only thing that bestows any meaning at all to your short life. Every single person needs to learn to see his or her life in light of eternity. Um, in the Harry Potter stories, the, the Dementors, uh, if you've seen the movies, you've got this terrible picture in your mind, right? These are the uh, terrifying wraiths who suck all the joy and the hope and the warmth and even the very soul out of you if they're attacking you. And uh, after Harry is attacked by a Dementor and when he's undergoing the, uh, the grueling training required to resist the Dementors, which is very difficult to do, um, Professor Lupin, a few times, uh, hands him a piece of chocolate and says, here, eat this. It helps. It really does. And uh, <clears throat> that's one of my favorite Harry Potter quotes because everybody knows the restorative properties of chocolate. And uh, <clears throat> so it's great. Uh, I want to say the same thing about eternity. Here, take this. It helps. It really does. Uh, I, that's what I want to say. It'll put, put all the joy and the hope and the warmth right back into your soul to consider eternity, to, to take Eternity. It really helps, really does. So that's what we'll talk about this morning. Let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, we pray that you would help us, um, not just for our sake, but for the sake of your name, for the sake of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. We pray that you would help us to, to read this, your word, to consider everything that it says, to take um, your gospel, to take your scriptures deep into our hearts, in a sense, to eat them so that we would live by them and be helped by them to live with you and for you in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream, like Grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning, it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening, 
it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. But their span is but toil and trouble. And they're soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So right away, uh, let's admit that in order for the thought of eternity to actually help you, First, you've got to take a hard look at some difficult things, a lot of difficult things to look at in this psalm. The psalm contemplates uh, the hardest stuff in life. It contemplates our mortality. It contemplates the question of the meaning of our short lives. And and contrary to the opinion of uh, some, maybe many, in the world, uh, the the Christian view of eternity is not just the naive, pie-in-the-sky stuff of empty wishes. We think about eternity, we're not just thinking, boy, I really hope something good happens in the future to make all this stuff better, to make all this stuff okay. Uh, When we talk about eternity, and we talk about all the the good that the thought of eternity does for us, we're talking about reality. We're talking about reality, and it's a reality that is able to take all of the hardest stuff into consideration. It's not naive, it's not shying away from this hard stuff. It's not just putting a band-aid on stuff. It takes it all into consideration. We're always interested in talking about reality, not positive thinking. So Tim Keller says that we've got to face sin and death or be out of touch with reality. You've got to face sin and death or you'd be out of touch with reality. So this psalm faces sin and death. Square on. The one who prays this psalm is not asking for the hard, stark realities of sin and death to be kept out of sight, out of mind. Help us just to get our minds off that. Think about something else. Just distraction. The one who prays this psalm isn't asking for that. It's pretty common in our culture to operate that way, right? To op- just distract ourselves. To operate as if the only way to actually live a happy life were to surround ourselves with images of the strength and the beauty and the vitality of youth. I think that we could just hold on to that moment, our youth. When you hit my age, 40, (laughs) you're supposed to have a midlife crisis. You're supposed to get all in a panic, right? 
It's normal for us to get in a panic, have midlife crisis, because we have a hard time drawing closer to death, passing that generally average halfway mark, right? Closer to death than to birth. We have a hard time facing that. We want to stay in the feeling of our youth. We arrange our whole worlds so that this is somewhat possible in our little minds. We tuck away the old people. And we tuck away the sick people. And we don't go and see them. Right? Into the corners of society we tuck them away. Even those people who are dearest to us throughout our lives. To leave them in places where we don't have to be confronted with what they're facing. We don't have to be conscious of what they're facing. We don't want our memories of them corrupted by the decay that's corrupting them. We don't like being confronted with mortality, especially not our own mortality. But when we pray this psalm, we're actually asking God to keep our mortality right in front of us. Keep it right in front of us. It says in verse 12, Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. So real wisdom about life has to be able to take into consideration all the hardest realities of life, the realities of sin and death, the realities of mortality. It isn't just morbid to reflect often upon our mortality. If you think about your own death every day, or you talk about death with people in the church, or people outside the church, it's not just a morbid thing to reflect on your mortality in light of God's word, to do it in light of God's word. When we talk about our mortality, we've got to talk about it in terms that the, the scriptures do. We've got to talk about it in terms of sin and death as the scriptures talk about sin and death. The scriptures say that death is not a natural part of life. It's not natural. And right there I've said something that I know is offensive to a lot of people around us, people who are dear to us, friends and family. The scriptures say that death is not a natural part of life and you don't come to terms with death by treating it like a natural part of life. When young people die, it's, it's easier for us to feel the catastrophe of it. When young people die, it's common to hear people say they went before their time. To treat it as something unnatural and terrible, like it really is. When old people die, it's so common to hear people say, well, they lived a good long life. What do we expect? It was their time. And to treat it like something ordinary and just to be expected. But the scriptures say that all death is unnatural. All death is terrible. Uh, yes, this psalm here in verse 10 describes the normal lifespan of a person. It says in terms of uh, like 70 or 80 years. Right? Uh, if you Google the average lifespan of a human being, it's 79. So it's pretty right on. Uh, <clears throat> but, uh, but that number, that number, even though it's kind of normal, and it's average, and it's common, 70 to 80 years, that number is fixed by God. That's a number that God declares, and he does so in judgment of our sin. And that's why that number exists. That's why that number, 70, 80 years, average, that's why that number describes 
how long people usually live until they die. It's because God set that number. Let's back up uh, to verse 3 of our psalm. It says, You return man to dust. You say, return, O children of man. So this is a reference to the earliest chapters in the Bible, talking about the the account of the creation, uh, our rebellion against God, the fall, the curse uh, that are in the first few chapters of the Bible. So in Genesis chapter 2, God formed Adam from dust of the ground. And he breathed into him the breath of life, and he became alive. And humanity was created to live with God, created from the dust, to have a relationship with God, and to live with God And death only entered the picture after things went wrong with humanity. After things went wrong. Not the way it's supposed to be. So in Genesis 3, we, humanity, turned away from God, and God in his righteous judgment proclaimed the death sentence. He says in in Genesis 3.19, you're dust, and to dust you shall return. That's the language that's picked up in our psalm. So life apart from God is death. It's a death that we've chosen. Uh, And in a sense, you could say the consequences of our sin are natural because this is the way God acts towards those who sin. He pronounces death, a death sentence. And that is emphatically not the way things were originally created or intended, right? Not, Not the way it's supposed to be. We were made to live with God forever, and death entered the picture after we sinned and because of God's judgment. So humanity wasn't created to decay, We weren't created to die. We weren't made to be able to handle those things, whether we see those things in the lives of others, we see that in our own lives and experience those things, decay and death. They're they're foreign to us. We weren't made to be able to handle those things and just take them in stride. Decay and death are disruption. The total disruption of death came as a result of our broken relationship with God primarily. Our broken relationship with God. That's what the scriptures say. So a few chapters later, in uh, the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 5, the generations of the sons of Adam are recorded, and we read of very long lives, reaching uh, almost a, a thousand years. You could kind of round it off. A thousand years, in some cases, people lived. As it's recorded in Genesis 5. Until in Genesis 6, God limits the human lifespan further brings it down to 120 because of the wickedness that's in the hearts of human beings. So a short life, a short life is not just the result of natural forces and the the laws of nature. God has shortened the lives of human beings. God brings them to an end because of our sin against God, our breaking of our relationship with God. This end is always the terrible consequence of our sin and God's judgment in the world, however a person dies, whenever a person dies. The life of a human being always ends before its time, so to speak, in an untimely way. It always ends too early because we were created to live with God forever. Even a life of a thousand years, like those recorded in Genesis 5, that's not enough. That's too short. It says in verse 4 of our psalm, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Just a few hours. 
So when you compare even a thousand years with eternity, the, the eternity that we're created to, uh, to live with God for, you even compare a thousand years to that, and it's, it's like a blink of an eye. So whether you're talking about a thousand or 120 or 70 to 80, life is always severely brief. It always comes to an abrupt and shocking end. It wasn't supposed to. Verses 5 and 6, God sweeps away the centuries as with a flood. He has this interesting relationship to time. The one who dwells from everlasting to everlasting, uh, as it was read in our, um, <clears throat> our New Testament reading from Second Peter chapter 3. Um, you know, a thousand years for God are like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. He has an interesting perspective and relationship to the time that we experience, Right? But here it says he sweeps them away as with a flood in the millennia. Millennia are like a dream. The lives of the longest lived people are as insubstantial as the grass, which is green in the morning, brown at the end of a hot summer day. When any temporal limit to our lives, any temporal limit at all, is too short, You could take all of human history together and it really doesn't amount to much when you compare it to the eternity that we were created to live with God for. Verses 7 and 8. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. So the severe brevity of our lives is a feature, first and foremost of our relationship with God because we've said no to him with our sin. You might uh, not like to think of God as angry or God as wrathful, as it says here, uh, toward sin. Maybe especially not angry, wrathful toward your sin. But he is and he, he must be because of who he is. Because of who he is. God takes our sin personally because that's what it is. It's a personal offense against God. And God will not stand for that which is against him, that which is anti-God. He can't be for that. It doesn't make any sense at all. He is holy. And uh, we could talk a lot about what that means. Maybe we'll talk about that some next week uh, in our next psalm. But he's holy, and when when our unholiness and his holiness collide... It's our unholiness that loses out. So, uh, so the psalm continues. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span, the whole of them, is but toil and trouble. And they're soon gone. And we fly away. So there's only such a thing as death because of the the curse of the holy God that's been pronounced upon the world, the Genesis 3 curse that makes our very existence a toil. Read in those verses. Life is hard because of our sin, because of the curse that rests on the world. That's the very curse that returns us to dust, quite literally, blown away in the wind. It's a fleeting life for us, and we feel that. We feel that when we stop long enough to allow ourselves to feel the fleeting nature of life, time flies. Where did the time go? Where did the the years go? 
How did it come to this? Can there possibly be any significance in such a brief life? Can there be any lasting meaning in it? Can there be any true joy in it? With death upon us in a moment's notice? Leo Tolstoy has that quote that's on the front cover of the bulletin. Uh, He ultimately was despairing of any good answer to these questions, but he asks, What will come of what I am doing today or shall do tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? These are good questions. So, wrestling with those questions, we fear death. And we avoid anything that reminds us of death. Anything that would make us think of the death that we so fear, we fear even thinking about it. But according uh, to the scriptures, ultimately, it isn't enough just to fear the pain of death or the grief that's associated with death or even the ultimate meaninglessness or the futility that we perceive that comes along with the idea of an inevitable death. It isn't just enough to fear those things. Our fear of death really ought to be a fear of God himself. Verse 11. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Who thinks about the fact that death is first and foremost a feature of our relationship with God? Who thinks about every single death being untimely because we were made to live forever with God and because we we sinned and we provoked him to anger? Who thinks about death as the place where God's holiness intersects with our unholiness? In the life of each and every single person who ever lived, who thinks about death as the unnatural and terrible consequence of our rebellion against God, that it's not normal? Even if it's the universal human experience, that it's not normal. Who understands and fears God as he ought? Who knows the full reality of the wrath of God for our sins? Nobody but Jesus. That's the real answer. Nobody but Jesus. Only Jesus perfectly understands the magnitude of human sin, the magnitude of the relationship with God that we've just destroyed through our sin. Nobody but Jesus perfectly understands the divine judgment for our sin. Only Jesus has truly faced sin and death in all that it is, faced it square on at the cross. Only Jesus has experienced God's wrath in all of its terrible reality, perfectly feared God's anger. Only Jesus. And it's only because he did this for us, that he went to the cross, that he faced sin and death, that he came to know personally and drank every, every last bitter drop of God's wrath on our behalf. It's only because he's done that for us to atone for our sins and to reconcile us to God that we can begin to face the reality of sin and death and our mortality. Face it, not run away from it. Actually, contemplate it. Instead of living just terrified of God on the run from him, instead of living just avoiding the reality of sin and death, we can ask God to come and meet us in mercy. We can ask him to give us a heart of wisdom by teaching us to face the brevity of life and our mortality in light of eternity. 
So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord. How long? Have pity on your servants. So when we're asking for that, we're not just interested in being sort of logical and calculating and sort of uh, like working with a financial planner, thinking about how many years you've got left, how many days of work, how much money you can amass, how much wealth, right, fortune, inheritance. We can make good investments and build a good inheritance and and have a good legacy to pass on to our children. That's all fine stuff. That's just not what this is about. We want the wisdom that comes from seeing all of life, including the very worst parts, the, the hardest parts, the severe brevity of life, our mortality. We want the wisdom that comes from seeing all of life in light of our relationship to God. That's what wisdom really is, seeing, seeing life in light of your relationship to God. We want the wisdom to see everything in light of our relationship to God, especially our mortality here in this psalm, and the true meaning of our short lives. And we need God to teach us this. Because in general, we're unwilling even to consider these realities, even to be faced with them. So we've got to ask God, keep these things in front of us and teach us. But we can face these things in light of the free gift, as Paul says in Romans 6, the free gift of eternal life, the free gift of eternity, with God. It allows us to face these things because of what we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Paul Tripp, uh, he's written a lot of books, and I probably have recommended several of them, um, but he's got one on this very subject, and it's called Forever. It's a book about eternity and eternal life. Uh, Forever by Paul Tripp. So, he, he says that we are prone to live like eternity amnesiacs. Those who Forget about eternity altogether. Forget about what it means to have eternal life and live in God's presence forever. Um, Those who have lost what that means because they're not restored to eternal life with God through faith in Jesus Christ, or those who, as Christians, we've been restored, but we just forget it. We don't think about it. We don't think about all of our lives in light of it. So we're eternity amnesiacs. But he says that when you know that you will live forever, and ultimately he's... He's talking about living forever in the new heavens and the new earth. It's that thing that we're looking forward to. Again, 2 Peter 3. Um, we know that's coming. And we pray that God will hasten that day. The new heavens and the new earth. Eternity in God's presence as resurrected people living with God, even as Jesus lives himself with God right now. When you know that because of who Jesus is, because of his life and death and resurrection, then your life will be absolutely changed in light of eternity. It'll be absolutely changed. <clears throat> you can be free from worry about the future. If you're convinced that um, this short life is not all there is. That no matter how this life ends, no matter what death you face ultimately in this life, it doesn't end there. That's just the beginning of eternity. And one day there will be the new heavens and the new earth where you see God face to face, every tear wiped away. And, uh, and all of history, will be sh- the, the light of God's presence will shed, uh, shed light on all of history and how, uh, how he's been at work in our lives and in the world. So you can be free from worry about tomorrow or the next day or 10, 20, 30 years from now. You can be free from worry about the future. 
if you're persuaded that uh, you've been reconciled to eternity, in a sense. Your connection to it is strong because of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. You can know that your sufferings, <clears throat> they're only relatively light and momentary, like, like Paul says, in light of the, the eternal blessings that are to come. They're just light and momentary afflictions. You can know that you'll never be alone, that you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You can approach life right now with joy rather than cynicism or despair. If you want real hope that doesn't disappoint, if you want courage to stand in the face of all of the world's misery and your own personal misery, if you want comfort in the face of grief and loss, if you want assurance that life isn't just all suffering and then you die. If you want to know that there's any meaning at all to be found in your short life, it will only be found in your ultimate connection to eternity. That is your connection to the eternal God himself, the one who lives forever. We can only face the hard things in life in light of God's personal eternality. That's where this psalm begins. That's where this psalm goes at the end. <clears throat> Beginning it says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you're God. Moses uh, wrote about this in Deuteronomy 33. It says, the, the eternal God is your dwelling place. It's not just some abstract notion of eternity, which is where you're going to live, or how long you're going to live. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Your relationship to eternity is, it's really your, your relationship to God's etern eternality. So, Derek Kidner says that God's eternity is the answer, not simply the antithesis to our homelessness and our brevity of life. It's not just that you know, you look and examine the brevity of our lives, and you see them contrasted with the length of God's life. It's not just an antithesis. It's the answer that we need. God's eternity is the answer to the brevity of our life. Our life will only last to a fully satisfying length that is forever if the eternal God is our dwelling place. Spiritually, <clears throat> which is true <clears throat> through faith in Jesus Christ who unites us to God spiritually in such a way that not even death can separate us from his everlasting love. That because he lives forever, so also will we live forever because of our union with God. The only way your life will be anything but the vain, empty blink of an eye, the only way your life or your, your whole life's work will amount to anything substantial at all is if you're united to the eternal God, to the God who lives forever. <clears throat> your relationship with God establishes your life in eternity, and that's what we're asking God to do with this prayer. Uh, the end of the, the psalm says, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor, <clears throat> let's, uh, let the beauty, let the pleasantness of our Lord 
of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Our lives and our works, the works of our hands, they don't endure. Or they're not great because they stand alone in themselves. You've done something marvelous there, and it'll be remembered throughout history. They don't endure apart from God in autonomy. Our lives and our works only count for anything when they're found in the living God, when they're found in Christ through faith, in Christ who lives forever. God is the one who brings our lives to an end, and God will be the one who transforms them, who raises them from the dust, who causes them to mean something glorious in union with the life of his son, Jesus. God is the one who lends your life the properties of his own eternity as you come to him through faith in his son. Take that, believe that, it helps, it really does. Amen. Let's pray. Father, there's no comfort in this world that uh, we can comfort ourselves with that's as great as the gospel of Jesus Christ that you've given us to comfort and encourage and strengthen and assure us throughout this life and, uh, and especially at the end of it as we think of the end of our lives as we talk about the end of our lives or the lives of those that we love, we pray that we would always think and talk about our mortality in light of your holy scriptures, in light of our relationship with you. So we pray that you would reveal more of yourself to us so that we can be encouraged and uh, comforted and assured that even though our lives are cut short, always cut short here on earth, There is a new heavens and a new earth that we're looking forward to. There is a resurrection from the dead. And we do belong there because of your grace, because of your love, because of the life and death and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would keep that thought always in our minds so that we would really be helped as we uh, come and, and think and pray using a psalm like this one. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.